Welcome to Glass Talk, Canada's podcast for the architectural glass industry. Now here's your host, Patrick Flannery. Hi, I'm here with Suzanne Bernier from SB Crisis Consulting. Suzanne is uh, a pandemic expert uh, that we had on, oh, a little closer to the beginning of all of this, uh, or at least when it seemed that it was getting more serious. And uh, boy, Suzanne had some prescient things to say at that time. And uh, she was involved with uh, crafting Ontario's pandemic response uh, back during the SARS outbreak. She's uh, spoken to the UN about pandemic preparedness. And uh, we're really, really grateful to have her uh, back here today for, I think, what we're going to see as a, as a look behind at how we've done and a, and a look ahead at where we're going. And so, Suzanne, uh, great to have you back. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me back, Patrick. I really appreciate you uh, you giving us the time for this. So let's start out with the how have we done question. What's your assessment, Suzanne? And, and I guess it's been been a month or more since we last talked about how Canada's done in terms of uh, responding to this pandemic. Now that we've implemented and once we started implementing certain closures and uh, orders, we did start seeing results quite quickly. So that is positive. I think one of my observations, and I don't know if we talked about it back the first time that we, we were on the line together, I believe that things started to be shut down and decisions were made a little bit too late. I would say that at least two weeks would have given us perhaps in certain areas where we're being more affected if we would have had maybe a couple of more weeks of those orders in place or those travel restrictions made. I think that might have helped us a bit. Unfortunately, you know, you can't go back now and say what if and um, we, we are in what we're in now. Um, but now that we're in it, and people have realized the severity of it, now those orders are being implemented and implemented effectively, I think. And overall, now it seems that now that they've been in place for a number of weeks, people are now taking them seriously. And I think that it's also important, though, to recognize that we're still on the rise of the curve that we're trying to flatten in a lot of different major areas across the country. Um, so we're still in a really critical time right now, or in more of a critical time even than we were perhaps a month ago. So it's, it's really going to be very interesting to see what happens now. Um, but we've also learned a lot. You hear all the time about the criticality of the time uh, and, and the speed of the response, don't you? And, and, and there was a critical sort of two weeks there at the start of, I'm going to say at the start of March is when I really felt it, where there was all this in uncertainty about, you know, what do we do? Do we close borders? Do we restrict travel? Should we still go to events? You know, and, and none of this was clear. Is that the time frame that you look at when you when you think yeah. of we might have we might have acted a little faster? Exactly. That is my gut feeling as well. Is if we would have all made the decision about two weeks ago, and not just in Canada but across North America and other areas, if they would have made that decision to shut down all travel across borders and also really implement local travel restrictions as well um, because of the, you know, what we're seeing in New York of how people were, you know, bringing it out to the outskirts and stuff out of the city. So um, I think some of those measures, yeah, would have helped reduce some of the levels that we're seeing and going through now because this is a, such a quick spread Two weeks, even though it doesn't seem like a long time when you're talking about a different kind of virus, perhaps it's not so deadly. 
and quick to spread. But with this one, that's why every single day um, made a difference. What, what have we learned about this virus, Suzanne? I mean, I mean it, it does seem to be amazingly infectious. Yeah, we've learned that it is definitely more infectious than SARS was. Mm-hmm. which was our, I guess, most recent version of a coronavirus. But that was an epidemic, not even a pandemic. It was an epidemic in, in certain areas, including where I'm from in, in the Toronto area. But what we are finding was hoping it was more like SARS. Um, but now we're finding out that it's a lot stronger than SARS and um, more infectious. And what we're now realizing, which is also problematic, is that we're seeing a lot of people who are asymptomatic, who don't have symptoms, but may very well have the virus Mm -hmm. and then be giving it to other people without at all consciously knowing it. And um, for several days before, or or people don't have signs at all. Whereas with SARS, you really saw those symptoms quite quickly within the first two or three days. So the onset Mm -hmm. of it was quicker. And then the amount of people that you're infecting is smaller because of that, so it's a lot more controlled. Um, with this one, that's what the challenge is, is it's not so controllable because it is that much more infectious and there are so many more people that may be out there not even realizing that they're infectious at the time. Yeah. When you look at the numbers and, uh, and, and the trend lines as far as infections, um, as you say, we're, we're still on a, a rising if flattening curve. So I guess when we think flattening, we think that the rate of new infections is is slowing in the way that we need it to or want it to. But how much longer do you think we could end up still seeing a rising, you know, sort of overall numbers of new cases coming? I think it's going to, well, it's going to be different depending on geographically where you are. But let's say for, if we're talking the greater Toronto area, I would say because our numbers are still continuing to rise, but I would predict, although that's all that everybody's really doing right now is predicting because this is a new virus mm-hmm. and unpredictable. Um, and so every day we're learning more and more things, but it seems that generally the predictions are that maybe towards mid next month, right. when we start seeing a flattening of the curve, but even the flattening of the curve, no one really knows what the time frame is for the flattening of it either. Because just when we say flattening, it doesn't mean it's going to start dropping off every day by 200 or 500 cases. Mm-hmm. It's still going to be, that's just meaning it's leveling off. Right. And then we're still going to see cases. It's not like we mean, oh, it's going to disappear after the, you know, we climb down the other side of the mountain. Climbing down the other side of the mountain and the pot of gold really is that vaccine. And so until we get that vaccine, there may be very other solutions that are created to be able to try to make things less severe, hopefully. But in reality, the only thing that's going to clear the the virus away from the world is a vaccine. And realistically, centers of disease control, as well as anyone else who is working on the development of these vaccines right now, even though we hear a lot of great news, which is that, you know, there may be a current version ready to be tested. Um, now, but that still takes a long process. So we're still looking at at least a year and a half before we can safely say that we even have a vaccine developed that's available for distribution to be able to then be doled out to everybody. So, but but it's also not saying that we're going to be at this height of the pandemic for the whole time either. Right now, because the, the virus has just 
arrive, that's when, of course, we're seeing a lot of rate of infection now. Um, and that's why we're trying to get people to be aware of and maintain their distancing, trying to flatten that curve so we're not overwhelming the healthcare system all at once at the beginning. We can manage that. And as we get through this first wave, also recognizing that there'll probably be a second wave because there was in every other single pandemic. And it just makes sense because people start then, you know, taking away the orders. People have now, you know, started getting a little stir crazy with not being able to do anything outside and gather around. The weather's going to get nicer. People are going to start wanting to gather around as those orders get lifted and the restrictions become less. We'll see infections again because, you know, just because we've gone through the, the height of this first wave doesn't mean we've beaten the virus and it's gone. It's still going to be out there. So it just makes sense that if you open up the population again, certain areas are going to get hit again if we're not careful about it. So that's why everybody now is so at all levels of government, you're seeing it in every ad and every entertainer saying it. It's because it's even when we do open back up for business in a staged way, we're still going to have to be aware of and still do those things that we're being told repetitively to do, which is basically to wash your hands and don't touch your face, which then if you can keep on doing that, you won't get the virus. Basically, that's the bottom line. But there's a lot of ways that we could contract the virus if we don't do those proper things, like staying away from people in case they're infectious without them even knowing it. Um, you know, staying that distance away from people, not, not socially distant, but physically distant. For some people, it's hard to think about this social distance and what, what exactly that means. And especially when we're thinking about coming back to business and how we're going to do that where it makes sense, but we're still following social distancing guidelines while we still need it, right, before a vaccine comes out. Well, uh, one way to put at it and look at it is the military, instead of using the term social distancing, they use the term tactical spacing. And I kind of like that term, especially when you're talking about business and, and how you're going to redesign your workspaces, let's say. If, if, if you need to do that. And I would say, think of it as tactical spacing based on how you want to reduce the rate of the potential infection, not just of this pandemic of COVID-19, but in the future as well of any kind of maybe localized epidemic that might may hit. Because now we see clearly how easy it is for something to come in and infect us all, whether or not it's as deadly as COVID-19 or something as just infectious though or more infectious but less deadly as measles yeah but we really do need to be better prepared and more strategically thinking about when we do come back to business how we're going to do that to be able to try to encourage health and safety from an infectious disease perspective yeah and, and we've been seeing some really interesting uh innovation from businesses because most of the businesses that uh, that I speak to have, have always been open all along uh, although many many of them have had to lay off uh, most or all of their uh, or a lot of their staff uh, just because of the reduction in, in, in business and the sort of the recessionary effect of all this yeah the spacing and doing things like building little plexiglass windows so uh, so people can uh, make payments without uh, exposing the the worker and uh, Obviously, all the curbside drop-off and pick-up and online ordering and doing meetings like this instead of live. There's, there's been a, a total revolution in really a, a how these 
places go about their business. And, and I, we'll get back to what measures of those might, might stick or might have to stick. I wanted to go back to the numbers and the, and, and the flattening. And I, I think the slowing of, of the rate of new cases has got to be one reason that the, the, the feds and Ontario and, and actually most of the provinces now have started talking about uh, getting into a reopening or at least hoping that they're going to be able to get into a reopening sometime mid-month from the pandemic response plans that, that, that you've seen, Suzanne, and, and no doubt have been talking about nonstop for the last month. What will be the initial measures and then sort of, I guess, the phases they go through and, and what will they have to see in the numbers in order to do those? Well, I think what they're going to do is they're going to take a look at how they started closing things off mm-hmm. and start reopening them in the same way, in reverse, mm-hmm. um, as long as it made sense. And they're probably going to review that as well, right? What decisions made sense at the time and maybe as they go through now, they might, you know, realize that, oh, and maybe it would have been better to close this earlier or this later or whatever. So I'm sure they're, they've been making those adjustments as well, if that they need to, you know, go that route again. But I'm assuming that what, the, what would make sense is they'll be using that strategy that they use to start restricting things and being able to reverse that. If we look at events, for example, you know how it went from people could have up to two events with 200 people, then it went down to 100 people, then it went down to 50 people, then we saw it go down to 20, then it went down to 10, and then five, and then two in some areas. Well, that's how we're going to start seeing that start to be lifted again in that way for events-wise, right, or people being able to congregate together, is we'll see first, okay, people can congregate in groups of five, and it'll go to whatever, you know, whatever, as it progresses like it did downwards. Um, And then we'll look at, and businesses, critical services will be the same thing, where critical services will be reopened back up and reevaluated and assessed as they were, as they were closing down and being identified as critical or non-critical. So that will happen as well. So there was a two different stages, let's say, for the province of Ontario, where the first stage they released an initial list of essential workplaces and what was going to stay open and what was to shut down. And then there was a second list afterwards as they realized that more had to be shut down um, to really limit the essential services out there at the time. So all, I'm assuming they'll take that and then they'll work backwards again um, with that as well. I would presume um, and predict that depending again on where we are in the country and in North America, schools may or may not be back before the end of the school year. So I think it's, it's important for people to start thinking about um, and acknowledging that that may happen as well. Yeah. Did we, in your view, get it right as far as what businesses were deemed uh, essential? Like, for, for instance, here, here in Ontario, it was pretty, at least initially, pretty much all construction and manufacturing was a- allowed to continue operating. Then even when they restricted the, the construction down a little bit, um, manufacturing was, was still lar- pretty much allowed to keep going almost every single kind of it. Like, like there was no you know, this is critical, that's not critical. It was pretty much, you know, if you're making stuff, you can keep your factory open and keep doing it. The only place more restrictive was was Quebec because apparently they needed to be or should have been earlier. In your view, did did they get it right as far as the as far as what was an essential business? They did not get it right at the first shot, I do not believe. When I first saw the Ontario list come out, 
with the essential workplaces. And, and people should be aware as well that the federal government itself, as well as the all, all provincial governments, including the Ontario government, already have within their emergency management plan, like the provincial emergency management plan, the federal emergency management plan, they already list and identify what they deem as critical infrastructure, not critical workplaces per se, but what is critical infrastructure. And there's, you know, seven key categories, I believe, or might be larger now, but, you know, financial services, of course, the banking industry, the healthcare industry, um, you know, the infrastructure, the roads and infrastructure, that kind of thing, but things that make sense, telecommunications, right? But with this list of essential workplaces that was created, it was so much broader than what's deemed critical infrastructure in our current plan. So I was, I was very surprised about how open that list was, first of all, uh, and what they deemed was essential at the time. And specifically when you mentioned the construction uh, industry, because when I saw that come out on the list that day, I just really became concerned about it because I thought, well, it depend- and they didn't really specify. I could see perhaps construction projects that are related to public safety that need to continue on or else that might create an incident that could then be, it'll respond to something that's public safety, then of course I get it. Anything else construction related, should I believe, I believe, as many of our BCP colleagues believe, that should have been deemed non-essential, including non-essential construction projects, but it wasn't in that list, it wasn't clear. And then what did, what did we see? I think it was within a matter of a day or two after that was released, a construction site in downtown Toronto became another new outbreak of COVID-19. And then a couple of days later, then construction sites that are not constructing public safety type projects then were then told to shut down. And then with the new list being released, those non-essential construction projects were then identified as not meeting the essential services list. Um, So that's just one example of an area that, and including in manufacturing as well, that should have been narrowed down further. And I know that the issue was they wanted to be able to try to have, create a good balance between making sure that they're maintaining the economy and, and business, but in the end, you're not really doing anything, but it's costing more anyway in the end. If you're trying to maintain things like construction projects that aren't critical, but then instead you're creating more outbreaks and then more people are uh, out in the community going to their families and bringing it to them and so on and so on. So that's why, of course, they need to whittle down that list. And then they did so further uh, a couple of weeks later. And so I think that when they reopen it back up, I don't know that they'll reopen back up the same exact way that they shut things down, because I think that they learned that they should have staged it a little bit better. And we'll probably see things staged and phased back a little bit better as well because of it. Well, I agree with you entirely. I, I, I was a little bit flabbergasted at, at, at how broad, especially the manufacturing was. And then, and then yeah, when it turned out that, that construction was, there was no list of uh, specific types of construction initially. It, it just seemed like you're basically letting all of this go forward. And, and that, that's interesting to me that they could have basically cut and paste out of their existing plan for what a critical uh, infrastructure was like I was kind of looking at it going well this is probably all happening so fast and it was too hard for them to 
parse out what's needed and what's not. And so they just painted with the broadest possible brush, but it sounds like all that was just sitting there ready to go and they didn't make reference to it or they wanted to, uh, they wanted to keep open as much as possible. And I get that. It just seems like it's so much a case of, look, you got to take your medicine up front. There's no alternative, you know, to taking the medicine because if you don't, it just drags. To that point, let me, let me go to something else I hear a lot of. People point at Sweden. People point at, uh, this morning I was debating with somebody pointing at Tokyo. People point at some of these areas around the world that at least if you believe what you're told, had either less of a lockdown or no lockdown and are experiencing apparently less infection rates. What's your take on all that, Suzanne? I'm not so sure about Sweden. Um, I can tell you a bit more about what I do know about Tokyo. And Tokyo, while they had appeared initially to be um, saving off the virus quite well compared to other countries, they have seen a resurgence of cases recently, specifically in Tokyo, that's concerning to them. I think that one of the reasons that they've been able to reduce the numbers or keep the numbers flatter than other countries is because of the common practice, just like in South Korea as well, where they had that practice with the masks, but it wasn't about people putting on masks to not get infected, but it was about anytime people thought they were sick themselves, just as a culture, they would put on masks. Mm. So I believe that because that's already ingrained in the culture in Japan, that that helped reduce the spread because of now, of course, Americans specifically, and some of us are being told to put masks on. But the reason we're doing that is it's not because to prevent us from getting it. It's if we have it and we don't even know it, and then we're spitting out droplets, to prevent us giving it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's hard for us. And now as a society, we're going to start to learn that concept. But that is something that has already been instilled in society, in that community, in Tokyo and in all of Japan. So because of that, I think that's also why they were able to see lower numbers. But they, they still have been seeing cases. And now I believe what they're being told is to try to remain aware again of the social distancing and uh, and keep that in force to try to make sure that the numbers don't get that much worse. Another thing in that area in Japan as well is they've always been very um, good with promoting hand cleanliness and in any of their restaurants, even way, way pre-pandemic. And I mean, now we have that term, right? Pre-pandemic and (laughs) post-pandemic. But pre-pandemic even um, in those areas, you'd go in, you'd walk into a restaurant and right away, you'd have hand sanitizer that would be available to you. I know that a lot of restaurants in North America offer that too, but in Japan, that was just a normal thing. Mm. And so out of habit, everybody does that as they walk in anywhere, before they touch their meal, after they finish their meal, when they walk out. And so all of that helps as well with the whole promoting just the basic hand cleanliness, which means that maybe you're not going to touch your face or touch your mouth, and then the virus is going to get in there. So I think that it culturally they're a lot more advanced in those ways, which is what we're at, the stage we're at now, is just starting to get our communities into that phase of getting used to just thinking that way. Bowing instead of handshaking, uh, obviously part of Japanese culture. Uh, The other Mm. thing I was reading this morning was uh, apparently it's mildly rude to talk 
uh, on public transit. The assumption is everyone's yeah. trying to be quiet and you know, spraying droplets around talking on public transit has been identified as a major risk factor. It's like their whole culture was just better set up for, for this than, than for ours this, was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, unfortunately, where they are, they're not as well set up for other things like tsunamis. And, but, yeah. but yes, yeah. society-wise and for the practices that they've put in place for so long, it, it has made them very well prepared. Hmm. for this specific event. So uh, you said you didn't know as much about Sweden, but what, what, what's your, what, like they, they did have a steeper curve though, didn't they? In, in Sweden? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see because no one really, even the experts don't really know for sure what's going to happen. They can just say predictions based on what they're seeing and how they're seeing things progress. So it'll be interesting to see where we're we're hearing about these other countries that potentially are saying that, you know, they've flattened their curve now and that they're on the downhill or that they've been able to maintain a certain uh, level and, and, and not go up. So we'll see. And hopefully that will continue to happen. But I think we also need to be real about knowing that, you know, yes, there's certain areas that if there isn't that, there hasn't been that much travel or they've been able to perhaps, you know, cut down that travel and they didn't have many localized outbreaks or much community spread in the first place, Mm -hmm. they may very well be ahead of the game and be able to control um, it as as well as possible until a vaccine is out. There's no way I don't think any country can say that they'll be able to, to get rid of the virus before a vaccine comes. But what you can do is try to be as successful as possible to manage whatever cases might come your way within your communities, wherever you are. And so there may be some communities just because of the makeup of the communities or the makeup of the country or who's going in or out, how long that they keep those in place. All of that's going to determine, I think, the success of a country or a community being able to limit um, the infections between now and, and when a vaccine comes out. What have we learned or what do we think we know about how immune you are after you get it, Suzanne? You mentioned you've been on some calls with the CDC. What, what, what's the present state of the science in that? Yeah, and that's been changing too. Even on, on our calls, just based on because every day, scientists are finding out more and more mm-hmm. about it. So even just a few weeks ago, people were you know, really talking a lot about this herd immunity mm-hmm. and, and hoping that maybe we, you know, we could perhaps get through it that way quicker and that that way, you know, if more people have it, then, you know, you got it, then you, you, we can reassign those people who've had it already to essential services and that kind of thing. Right. Well, now they're cautioning about that because now it's looking like we can't guarantee that you can't get reinfected again. Because in some of the areas that are ahead of us in Asia and other areas that have, have, you know, already gone through their first wave, not only are they seeing the potential of a second wave, but they're also seeing people who seem to be either it's they're getting reinfected or they they're supposed to have been, you know, recovered, but then somehow the virus lays dormant and then comes back again and then they retest positive. So there have been several hundred people so far, documented cases around the world of people in that, in that, with that situation. So that's a, a bit worrisome because people can't just say now, 
well, if you've got it, once you've got it, you won't get it again. But you, it may be a fact, but right now they're trying to see whether or not these cases are just something, a case of it was, it laid, you know, dormant for a while and then came back again, or if it was that potentially you could get reinfected and reinfect others. Wow. And that, yeah, and that, I mean, I think that was kind of the gamble a place like Sweden was trying to take was saying, well, normally these viruses, you know, confer immunity if you've had it. Uh, so if we have the hospital capacity to deal with it, we can stand in an, we can stand the spike uh, off the start and then uh, it'll be, it'll be over sooner. And it's kind of like the reverse of taking the strong medicine, right? If it turns out that, you know, this thing doesn't confer any immunity or that the immunity is, is weaker or doesn't last very long. I mean, you know, and look at the common cold, right? You know, you, you don't stay immune to that for very long. Right. And that's the coronavirus. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's just another, t- it's just another type of it. And now I think they blame that on mutations in the virus, but, but uh, you stay immune to the one strain, but you, you're still vulnerable right. to a slightly different strain of it, which right, and this, right. this has mutated several times, hasn't it? I thought they said 30. It, it has, but not to the extent where, you know, normally if you say a virus has mutated, then that means it's mutated. And now you got to start all over with the vaccine because now it's yeah. not the same composition. So it hasn't mutated that way, Good. but it's just, changed a little bit where it just more like it's changing and giving us signs of you know what it's all about and and what it's doing as, as opposed to really changing dramatically where it's changing composition um, because then that wouldn't be a good thing either and and then obviously we don't want that happening because the vaccine that's already being worked on is based on what this virus looks like now from what the cdc is saying um that it looks like it, it it's not mutated to to uh, an extreme where we would have to be concerned about that at this point. That leads us right into what are the prospects for a vaccine, Suzanne, and 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 how long out are the experts saying they are on it? Because clearly nothing is going to return to a hundred percent normal uh, until well, not only is there a vaccine, but just about everyone's gotten it. Right. And while the good news is going to be a vaccine that'll be created, the unfortunate news is that it's not going to take only a few months. It's obvious, as you've heard now, and everybody's heard, it's going to take at least a year. But realistically, I'd say by the time, and this is from the CDC as well, who've been saying, you know, 12 to 18 months or so, um, by the time a vaccine is approved, you know, developed, approved, tested, and then distributed to everybody, I would say realistically, we would be looking at the end of 2021. Mm -hmm. For us to be able to say a vaccine is out to people everywhere and, um, and people are vaccinated and we don't have this as a concern anymore, I'd say that we should probably be looking at that. But in the meantime, it doesn't mean that everything's closed down up until then yeah. and that we're at this point that we're at, right? It just, it just means that that's when we can safely say that people aren't going to be going around spreading the virus once we have a vaccine. Yeah. Um, and that realistically, once we had a vaccine, for SARS, let's say, SARS was eradicated two years after it was at its worst height mm-hmm. in Toronto. Um, two years later, it was deemed eradicated by the World Health Organization. Um, and that was a coronavirus as well. Mm-hmm. And it killed 44 people here in the city of Toronto um, in just a, a really tight window of, I, I believe, three weeks. Just a small, much smaller example of what we're seeing at a much larger scale with uh, COVID-19 now. But I would say, yeah, we, we need to plan for how we're going to look at bringing back business a lot sooner 
than the end of 2021 yeah. um, in, in a different kind of scenario where we need to still look at implementing tactical spacing and social distancing, potentially, you know, when it's appropriate to wear masks, the in, enhanced cleaning, all of those things that we need to consider right now, we're going to still ha- need to consider when we're back up to the new normal and bringing business back. Because as we know now, the virus is still going to be around. We're not going to just be able to eliminate it for the, until at least probably, I'd say realistically, yeah, at least two years before everybody globally has a global distribution on it. So how long do you think before congregating in groups? And like you said, it's likely to be a phased in uh, uh, thing, 5, 10, 50, 200, right. something like that. When do you think um, larger groups of like uh, 200 might be allowed? Again, it'll depend on the community. It depends on the area, region. yeah. Yeah, because I know that we're seeing some, some provinces, fortunately, um, it looks like have been able to um, flatten their curve pretty well. And so I'm assuming that in those provinces, they may make some decisions earlier, but I think they'll still stage them as well. Um, so they'll probably open up at, you know, 10, 20 at a time and then, and then from there. Um, so for them, I could see maybe getting back to groups of 200 in a few months. Right. Say in the larger areas, like in the Toronto area, I don't see that happening until, I don't even know if I could predict that happening this year. Wow. Safely. Uh, don't say yeah. that. I've got an event I'm supposed to do in the <laughs> fall. <laughs> well, now I do say there, I, I can say that positively people are still planning for things, let's say that are August 1st or onwards. Right. So at this point in time, people aren't being advised to say, okay, just scrap everything you've got on the book for the fall. But there may be, and, and I'm not saying there may be orders still in place even. Uh, in the fall to be able to do that. There may just be some difficulties and challenges of um, people either wanting to be able to host those events for you. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, there's just going to be a lot of things that people are going to have to be dealing with over the next few months, really, yeah. Yeah. to be able to all come together in agreement to be able to feel like everybody's got a sort of comfort level to be able to do that. So not only those who want to attend things, and the companies that they work for and the communities that they're with, you know, when are they going to be comfortable in sending people to attend something in a large group? And is the event holder going to be willing to do that? Um, it's all going to be really dependent on what the environment's like at the time. And unfortunately, that's the thing that we're in right now is we can't really predict. So hopefully, yeah, that by the fall, people will be comfortable enough, will be confident enough, and will have got to and learned a lot more about this. And potentially, hopefully, we'll have learned that maybe people have some immunity to it or quite a bit of immunity mm-hmm. to it. And there are certain types that do and certain don't. You know, I think we'll learn a lot um, that might help us make those decisions as well. We're going to need immunity tattoos. If you've had it, you get a yeah. little tattoo and we can, and we can <laughs> say, okay, you're, you're, you're allowed out of the house now. Another thing that they're thinking is it may even be a case where we might have to get regular vaccinations for it. So it might be not just a one-time deal, but, you know, you get your vaccine every yeah, every like the years, flu shot. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. What would they want to, or be looking for in the numbers opening up events again? Like, would this be a case where there'd have to be no new cases in an area for a month? Again, it'll be different based on each community. 
-hmm. but it's going to be based on numbers and it'll be after they start seeing, of course, numbers go down and the cases fall. And I, I, I think that every province is going to make a decision, going to have to make a decision on their own about what those numbers look like yeah. and how comfortable they feel. Um, and then based on numbers, they'll also still, even with those numbers dropping and when they decide to open things back up, it'll still be phased in as well. So based on that, those numbers, then maybe they'll open up a certain type of business and services right. and activities. And then they get to a, a, another like no cases for a certain amount of weeks and then they can open other things back up. Um, I think it'll, it'll go that way. Another thing that will happen, though, is we can't always think about just always thinking about the no cases and no cases, because we also have to be aware that the virus is still kind of going to be out there. So to not be panicking, just to be aware of that there may still be new cases coming around. But as long as we have random new cases sporadically coming in throughout the rest of the year, not overwhelming our system and overwhelming all of our other systems, that's really how we can make this manageable and start phasing back up again and ramping things back up again. But even ramping things back up, we really need to think about how and how best it makes sense to ramp things back up and getting, you know, everybody's business back to business in the best way that it makes sense to be able to do so. And maybe there's certain things that you've had to implement now in the meantime, or that you're going to have to implement over the next several months until you can get to what the new normal is. And maybe now that's going to be your new normal. You know, yeah. all of these things decided to create to be able to respond because you can't do anything else. But, well, maybe now those are creative solutions that now our businesses need to keep going. And maybe there are certain things that unfortunately we've lost, but now we realize, hmm, maybe that's not the best way for us to do things in the future in case something like this happens again. So maybe we don't do things that way in the future. I think this is a really good opportunity in a way for people who've got, you know, business continuity programs in place and emergency management programs and plans in place to really take a look now at what they need to be deeming as how they function in the future and what makes best sense, both economically, but efficiency-wise and safety-wise. Well, here's the thing, right? Even as a small business, you've painted the lines on the floor. Uh, you've already got people standing in their spaced out spaces. You've built the little plexiglass window for your person at, at the counter. You've already gotten many of your customers ordering in ahead of time, uh, sending you signed contracts by email or, or some way over an app and doing curbside delivery. It's almost more work to go backwards and, and remove all of that now than, than, it is, right. than it is just to go forward with those same procedures in place. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Ordering ahead has accelerated so far beyond what it was. You know, that, that's, that's one way I think things are probably not going to come back. Because the ordering ahead is really helpful for a lot of businesses, right? Because that means they don't have to have somebody in a showroom walking around. They don't have to have staff really dealing with anybody for any length of time. You know, they just, they, they show up, they pick it up and they leave. Right. And it's basically yeah. off the back of a loading dock or something like that. Yeah. Thinking of my businesses. And I, that's another thing for the showrooms. That's, that's a good example of when you're looking at opening back up the showrooms on mm -hmm. just thinking about that tactical spacing and the enhanced cleaning. Those are the two things really, you know, mm -hmm. it's not so much about 
thinking that you can never open that back up again or that you can't open that back up again while the virus is out there. It's just making sure that you can implement as best you can the social distancing within your showroom and then the enhanced cleaning of anybody who like comes in and out and whatever they touch at the high touch surfaces and maybe having some kind of thing that you institute where there is a no touch policy. Yep. Some of the stores have done that for sure. Uh, they've, uh, they've put in um, caution tape down the middle of the, of the showroom. You know, when, when you come in, just, you have to stay in this alley to get to the counter. You, you're spaced out in terms of waiting, although there's often not much of a lineup, but, but it, and it isn't a matter of, of wandering around the store, touching things, you know, picking things yeah. up and putting them down. Um, you know, it's just, okay, walk through, get to the counter and, and you're done. What's good is that because we're all facing this, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like we, we, any of our businesses have to feel like, oh, our clients are going to feel we're, like, you know, we're rude and that you're yeah. only doing it for their safety. Yeah. So. You're not losing out to the competition. <laughs> right, exactly. Because <laughs> the competition's in the same boat. <laughs> that's a good thing. Been, that's been absolutely critical. I've kept you a long time here, Suzanne, but there's just so many bloody questions. We, we hear uh, testing, 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 testing. Is there a scenario you see where businesses should be getting into testing their, their, their staff, maybe even their customers? What, what, what's the role for businesses in the, whole, in the whole testing regime? Ideally, I would not recommend businesses get into the testing because that's a whole other area where, I mean, already you're looking at dealing with things that a lot of us, even the professionals, are not experts in. Um, and so if you're getting into looking at bringing testing into your own workspaces, that's a whole other team um, area, you know, that you're going to have to look at building and maintaining. And um, that's a whole other responsibility too, where if for some reason something goes wrong, um, then you're liable. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're um, in a, bringing in those tests yourself as a business. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that. I would recommend leaving that to the health authorities. To be able to do that and to coordinate. And if anything, as an employer or a business, you would be promoting that employees go for testing within your public health networks and however that's being provided. But I wouldn't necessarily bring it within your businesses. Um, Another thing about testing is because we don't really know what what the results mean to, you know, there's the there's false negatives and positives that we're seeing and stuff too. Um, the other issue that I know that we're seeing a lot of these images of people, and we may see that in, in some places in North America as well as things are opening up and which, which businesses we're talking about. You know how you're seeing right now on television people ha- having their temperature taken mm-hmm. before they go into areas or workplaces? So for those workplaces that are thinking of doing something like that as well, I would just caution that. One, the only way that you can effectively take someone's temperature that way, you're not maintaining the social distancing role, first of all, mm. to be able to do that. And second, what the whole point is that a lot of people are asymptomatic and don't have symptoms, including a fever. So even if you try to test somebody for a fever and they don't have a fever, they still could be 100% carrying the virus and you've just let them in the building. Um, right. We even said that back in during H1N1, which wasn't, and SARS, which wasn't nearly as infectious, was that there was that potential of two to three days beforehand where you, where you didn't have a fever. Well, this is even more so where there's a potential for several days where you don't have a fever or sometimes never at all. Yeah. 
so that's another area where I'm just cautious and I want people to be cautious about thinking that you take someone's temperature and that it's safe to let them in the building afterwards. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I always, I always looked at those, those pictures of people taking temperatures and kind of went, well, that's kind of halfway there, isn't it? Of course, testing is, is essential to be able to make sure we know where cases are and, and yeah. you know, then we we'll, uh, make sure that we can confine people for a couple of weeks so that you're not, you don't, have a huge outbreak um, within your community or within your company or within in your business. It makes sense, but it's, it's just one tool to be able to help. Uh, I think the best tool though is to, within a business or a company is to be able to still really figure out how you can contain and maintain business with these new considerations in mind with the spacing challenges as well as the promoting how to not spread the virus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, if the local health authorities get tests and, and, and start going on some kind of mass uh, testing regime, which everybody says we need, but we don't really see any signs of yet. Uh, and, then, and then I guess after that, when, it's, when it comes down to vaccinations, there's nothing to prevent a company or, or it's probably advisable, right, for, for a company to either encourage their staff to, to go to the place and get this stuff done or like sometimes they even have remote units, right? Like I've seen this with the flu virus yeah. where they'll, they'll come out and, 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 and vaccinate everybody. Yeah. Do you think initiatives like that would be a good idea? I think so, yeah. 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 Give me the quick primer, Suzanne, on why testing is such a big deal. Like like your numbers are all useless, right? If you If you haven't got a lot of this testing. Right, because then you don't know how many people, they're trying to gauge how many people within your population have it and then how many people so it's not just about the testing but then it's about the contact tracing as well mm. so that you can figure out okay when you test then you can figure out who hopefully um, if the test is accurate who has the virus and then you can go back to that person and how many people they've been in contact with for a 14-day period and then spread out from there you get a you're able to get a better idea of potentially how much or how many people are potentially infected in your area. And then also, then you can try to secure those people who potentially have been in contact with that one infected person that just tested positive, and then alerting them to then sequester for a two-week period to try to prevent them going out and then spreading it to other people and so on and so on. So that's why it's the importance of testing, because otherwise, if you don't get a test, people aren't tested at all, then they don't know. Already, we have a bunch of people who aren't getting tested because they don't think they need to get tested um, because they don't feel anything. But the point of, yeah, getting these tests in place is ideally everybody should get tested. But you never know if you could get tested one day and then on your way home from that test or five days later, you know, that test result comes back and it was negative at the time. But in between, you could have contracted the virus. So there's some challenges with relying completely on tests as well. Mm -hmm. But the whole purpose of it is to try to get at least a feel for, you know, those who are sick and come in and get tested right now. And then we find out who they are, who they've been in contact with, contact all of those people and tell them, advise them to stay away from anybody else. And then potentially we're trying to isolate that from going any further, at least from that person who yeah. tested positive. The most critical aspect there is is going to be in successfully opening up without inducing a, a really broad second wave, right? Because 
Right. The idea in the second wave is going to be to identify when it's breaking out in an area and shut that area back down while leaving everything else open. Well, the only way to do that is to have that testing and contract tracing when the outbreak appears, right? Yeah. Fortunately, now we're aware, at least, of what we're dealing with, and we're building the capability right now to be able to deal with a potential second wave um, if and when it happens. So that's a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do believe we will have some kind of a second wave in some areas mm-hmm. because it's just, it's, it's going to happen as long until there's a vaccine happening, unless we just didn't open up anything until a vaccine happens, well, which yeah, doesn't well, make sense. That right? can't happen. Yeah. So, right. Suzanne, thank you so much. Uh, this has been really good. I, you know, I mean, we're, we're all pandemic and virologist experts now after a month of this. Yeah. <laughs> It must be so weird for you to have everybody around you now like obsessed with what you've spent so long thinking about. (laughs) We're all tracking numbers and looking at curves and saying, oh, well, you know, do these numbers reflect this or that trend? Everybody's obsessing over this stuff for the first time ever. I I, I was joking that um, people like you in the government, you know, the the Dr. Tams and and the Fauci's of the world, uh, man, they're going to have a blank check once this is over <laughs> as far as their budgets are concerned. Because, holy moly, what a change in, in the amount of attention that's going to be paid to all this kind of thing, right? But Yeah, yeah. But people don't forget, though. That's the thing, too. That's the challenge as well, right? We all went through, well, not we all went through, but, you know, New York went through 9-11. And then yep. the governments and, and agencies got a bunch of money to be able to plan for the next thing that happens. Hurricane Katrina happened and then... You know, everybody mm-hmm. started planning for things, but then things don't happen for a while and money people gets taken forget. away and people don't think about it again, right? People so, relax. People want to be back to But I think this their... is pretty big, so. Yeah. I, I, I think this has gotten everyone's attention. <laughs> yeah, I think so, unfortunately. <laughs> to a very large degree. <laughs> I'd love to be chatting again as we go through this further because this is going to be a, quite, a, quite a long ride. So I'd be more than happy to, to chat us through this as we go through it. I am going to get back to you again, and I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to leave it for a month next time. I've been. I've been spending so much time just t- trying to tell people how to keep their businesses afloat with financial advice uh, that yeah. <laughs> I've actually gotten back to the actual <laughs> pandemic for a while. But um, no, th- th- listen, Suzanne, th- th- this has been tremendously helpful, and I I really do thank you, and uh, and we'll do this again soon. And, uh, and for sure. Okay. So take All care right. for now. Yeah. Right, stay too. safe. Okay. You too. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Glass Talk. You can find this episode at glasscanadamag.com or on the major podcasting services. Glass Talk is a presentation of Glass Canada Magazine and Annex Business Media.